Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. Tracy Breakfast. Oh yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. You are listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 8. Triple five, no, eight double five a.m. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> my mind. Too uh, early. Yes, it's it's always too early. So you're listening to Ayan, Anya, and George. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Lauren couldn't be couldn't be here with us today. Um, hopefully, she'll join us in the near future. Yes, we miss her dearly. Yes, <laughs> we do. Big ups to Miss Al. So on the weekend, we had a fun. <laughs> we had a fun time. We did have a fun time. <laughs> You were there to warm my house, yes. which is really nice. Anya's housewarming. Yes. If anyone's been following my saga of trying to find a place to live, mm. it has happened. I have a house. Yes. And it's been warmed up over the weekend. Yeah. And super cozy place as well. Oh, thank you. It's perfect <laughs> for the two of you. And I mm. love that there's so many books as well. Like, that's, so that's what books. sold it for me. <laughs> it's like, wow. I might organize a book club in the future. You know what? We need to do mm. a breakfast book club. Mm. Yeah. If that's something you're interested in <laughs> and you want to be a part of, mm. hit us up on Facebook and yes, yeah, suggest definitely. books. Even if you have books yourself that you'd want us to review, mm. we're more than happy to do that. Yes. That's a great idea. Yeah. And hit us up for any reason, really. If you have anything to say yeah. to Tuesday Breakfast, we'd love to hear it. Except <laughs> if uh, it's not a... Except if it's... Hateful. Vilification. Yeah. Maybe not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, should we jump into some news headlines? Let's do it. Okay. Legal action has been taken against 25 people who participated in hate speech during the marriage equality survey, as reported by the Star Observer. The complaint of vilification is being lodged by the Brisbane-based LGBTI Legal Service. The examples of hate speech occurred over social media as well as on street posters. The Star Observer quoted Matilda Alexander, president of the LGBTI Legal Service. She says, To those who would publicly vilify and condemn us for our simple acts of love, we say enough is enough. We have been shamed, shunned and looked down on for too many years. We have protections in the law and today we will use those legal protections to fight back. The Greens and Labour are attempting to move a motion of no confidence in Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton due to the au pair saga. Dutton has denied misleading the Parliament on the question of whether or not he had a personal connection with the au pair's employer. However, he also went on radio saying that the employer was a former police colleague. This goes back to 2015 when he approved the visas of two au pairs facing deportation. The Guardian reports that the motion will likely be moved when the Parliament resumes next week. In Malaysia, two women who were found guilty of attempting to have sex have been caned in a courtroom with about 100 witnesses. 
The Guardian has reported that women have been caned in Malaysia for other sexual offences, uh, such as adultery, but this is the first time the punishment has been carried out against two women attempting to, attempting to have sex. And in Myanmar, two... Is it Reuters? Mm. Reuters journalists have been found guilty of breaching a law on state secrets during their reporting of a massacre that, um, against the Rohingya people, as reported by Al Jazeera. They have been sentenced to seven years in prison. One of the journalists, while alone speaking to reporters, said, What I want to say to the government is, you can put us in jail, but do not close the eyes and ears of the people. This is yet another example where the freedom of the press is being constrained by, the, by Myanmar's de facto leader and Nobel Peace Laureate Aung San Suu Kyi. Mm. Yeah, we were talking about this last week and the judgment hadn't been handed down at that point in time, mm. which people thought might be a good sign. Seven yeah. years. That's a really long time. Mm. Just to, for just have, you know, reporting, reporting yeah. on what's going on. On the massacres that yeah. are happening. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And here it's the complete opposite where anybody that has a pen or access to Wi-Fi is a journalist mm. and, and can spew whatever opinion that they want to spew. Mm. Yeah, and sometimes we take it for granted. Um, yeah, that's pretty horrific. Mm. Yeah. Um, I've got a song to play. Yeah, let's list us a little bit. Yes. Um, this is an artist called Blood Orange. I'm not sure if either of you Blood Orange. Okay. Yeah. Um, and Blood Orange has a new album out called Negro Swan. It's so, so beautiful. If you have a chance to listen, I highly recommend it. I think that the, the theme of the album is about living with depression. Mm-hmm. And Blood Orange is a, um, is a person of colour who's also queer as well. Mm-hmm. And so this song is called Hope. Starting on Thursday the 13th of September. It's a show about kids stuff. What sort of kids stuff? All sorts of kids stuff. I'm Carl Bonuzzo. <laughs> and I'm Daniel Salvatore Christopher Larkins Bonuzzo. And we are... Playing the planets that matter. Spinning the discs with a twist. Talking the job that will keep you alive. To, to make, make sure, sure you really, really exist. Every Thursday. From 3.30 till 4. Right here on 3CR. 8.55 on your AM dial. We have giveaways and question time. So we need you to SMS your favourite line. So tune in to find out what's going on in our world. I'm Dinah, surprise, surprise. surprise. CR is in the running to receive nearly $100,000 to help us retrofit our station for greater accessibility. That means better handrails, doors, taps, ramps. And more to provide improved access for everyone. But we need your support. Do you live within 5 kilometres of the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy? If you do, you're eligible to vote for us. Our project is part of the Victorian State Government's Pick My Project Scheme. And you can jump online and vote for 3CR's Community Radio Accessibility Project by going to 3cr.org.au. It's only with your vote that we can receive this important funding to make our station more accessible. 
You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. That track we just heard was by Blood Orange and it's called Hope. It was beautiful. Yeah, you liked it? Mm. Definitely, um, yeah, very similar vibe with the other songs. Like, but it's all different like, and just really, really incredible. Mm. Yeah. And I think when I asked you where you heard that song from... It was from Community Radio, yes, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. I listen to so much Community Radio. There's always such great music. Yeah. Yeah. I should really start listening to Community Radio music. I think that's my biggest letdown. Yeah. Well, I guess you have it for, like, the politics and you have it for, like, music mm. and you have it for, like, just engaging with your community. Like, there's yeah. so many different reasons why yeah. you would listen. You're an inspiration, George. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, on 25th of August, Lauren, Anya and I went to a march called Stand Up for Equality, um, March Against Men's Rights Activists. It was organized by a campaign against racism and fascism, as well as the National Union of Students, LGBTI, as well as Books Not Bombs, and Con Kravis from Books Not Bombs will be joining us later on the show, so that's definitely an interview to look out for. And finally, it was also organised by the National Union of Students Women's Department. Lauren um, recorded some of the speakers on the day, so we're just going to have a listen.
Muslims. They're the exact same people who organized Nazi rallies in this town saying that Allah should be banned, saying that Muslims should be pushed out uh, of Melbourne and of this country. And these are now the people who are taking up slogans around women, saying that this country should be more and more sexist. Well, we've got to be here and say, we know exactly what kind of people these are. We know exactly what they're here to do. They're here to drive things back and say something that we are all here to stand against. We stand for women's rights and for pushing things forward. The people at this March for Men want to see women's rights progress. They are the type of people that think women aren't good enough to work in particular fields. That women can stay at home with their kids and submit to the wishes of their partners. One of the speakers that was planned to talk at their march today believes that sex without consent in marriage isn't rape. Shame! Sydney Watson herself has made videos and public statements that the Me Too movement is ruining workplaces. This idea implies that in order for a woman to get a job, she has to accept that she will face sexual assault and harassment in her workplace. We know that it's sexual assault and harassment that is ruining workplaces, and women should be encouraged to keep speaking up and calling out this behaviour. So we're here to remind people and Melbourne that women will not go back to the 1950s. We will not allow until we see full liberation for women across this country. So let's go through some facts because it seems there are some facts missing up the back behind me. So let's go through some of these. Men are the perpetrators. In the majority of cases of domestic violence, women are overwhelmingly the victims. Fact. All right. This doesn't dismiss other facts. The reverse can also be true, which I'm sure we're going to hear a lot of today. No one's denying that all of this stuff takes place though and that women are the perpetrators. 95% of incidences of violence, victims are overwhelmingly women, men are overwhelmingly the perpetrators. All cases of violence, men are overwhelmingly the perpetrators. Australian women are almost four times more likely than men to be hospitalised after being assaulted by their spouse or partner. We're here today to talk about women's rights and why we need to defend them. One in five women have experienced sexual violence, one in 22 men. Not denying that fact, but the statistics lay out that women are much more likely to be the victims. The major danger to me in my home is my own male partner. Right? Shame. Shame. We're here today to challenge these kinds of gender stereotypes and to stick up for women. It's okay for men to be masculine, sure, but I want to ask, what is that understanding of masculinity? What are we talking about when we say what is masculinity? Are they going to be talking up the back behind me about how it's okay to challenge your mates to not harass women? Is it ensuring that you don't make others uncomfortable due to your size, your space, your presence late at night? Is that what we're asking when we say it's okay to be masculine? Is it being okay with breaking down these gender stereotypes? Because feminism actually wants these things for men too. If the men off the back behind me actually listen to that, they would understand feminism is about breaking down these gender stereotypes for all. <laughs> Society is still overwhelmingly structured to benefit men. Men's interests are still promoted above and beyond women's when it comes to things like the pay gap paternity leave, health concerns and safety, we know that society is set up to still benefit men. And in order to get that thing, sometimes men are going to have to not give away some of their rights, but it's called equality. So, none of the above has been said by me to demonise men. I'm not here to demonise a man. I've just outlined some basic facts for you. Men, women, people of all genders are crucial to helping change all of the stuff that I've actually talked about here today. 
We want men to help us change this. We want people of all genders to help us change this. That's what feminism is actually about. What we don't want or need is a march telling men that it's okay to carry on with the same behaviour. Their attitudes towards violence and equality need to change because that's what we as feminists have actually been pushing for for a squillion fucking years. <laughs> men don't need to be more masculine in the exact same way that they've been carrying on forever. They need to redefine what masculinity is and you can guarantee up behind me we're not going to have banners saying don't be violent towards women change your attitude towards masculinity. They're going to be saying, carry on doing exactly the same things that you have because you're the victims here. And that is not overwhelmingly true. It's people like Sydney Wilson, long-term supporters of Donald Trump, long-term sexist and racist, uh, long-term Islamophobes, that's the kind of people who are organising here today. As well as that, people like Avi Yemeni, uh, who have time and time again organised alongside the far right in Melbourne who have come out uh, protesting to ban Muslims from our streets, these kind of things. The people organising these rallies today are clearly fascist and we all know that. It's worth knowing who are the people who are out here today. Put up your hand if you know who the true blue crew is. Yeah, so the true blue crew are a bunch of fascists who like to organise themselves in vigilante gangs against Muslims. They, they, they also, in this city, have been saying there's too much Sudanese crime. They're saying we need to push Sudanese people out of this city. It's absolutely disgusting. And so these fascists who are here mobilising on our streets, not just men's rights activists, not just people who bear the banners up there, they are the proper far right who mobilise in this city again and again and again, attacking Muslims, attacking migrants and Sudanese people, attacking the left, attacking everyone who stands up for progressive ideology in this city. Shame! Shame! And that's the truth of what this rally is today. Up there, there is a far-right fascist rally going on, and that's why the campaign against racism and fascism, one of the important things for us, is calling that out. Saying, you try to hide behind all these slogans, you try to reach a broader audience, but we know who you are, you're fascist, shame on you, we will chase you down, we will organise rallies wherever you go, and we'll show. There are people in this city who oppose racism, who oppose sexism, who oppose the far-right, and we'll come out every single time you try to mobilise. is conducting a review of everything it does to support people over 65 and we want your input. Whether you're an older Darabin resident, approaching retirement or have ageing parents or loved ones, this review is relevant to you. We need all perspectives on how we can make Darabin an age-friendly city. For more information, visit our website on www.darabin.com 
www.darawan.gov.au or call Darawan Council on 8470-8470 to speak in your language. The City of Darawan is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast with George, Ayan and myself, Anya. Next up, we have Dr. Janine Lane, who's an award-winning Rajri writer, poet and academic from southwest New South Wales. Janine has published widely in the area of Aboriginal literature, writing otherness and creative non-fiction. She currently teaches creative writing and Aboriginal literature at the University of Melbourne. Thank you so much for joining us today, Leanne. Oh, Janine, oh, I'm so sorry. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it's just been one of those mornings. Um, yeah. Let's let's start by talking about the upcoming event on the 8th of September at the North Fitzroy Library, um, where you and Ellen Van Neven are going to be discussing the book Meet Me at the Intersection. What is this book about? Yeah, um, just a, a little bit even to backtrack before that, um, Ellen, as you mentioned, I'm a um, Wiradjuri author. Um, Ellen Van Neven is um, a young, queer, Mullinjali author from mm-hmm. South Queensland. Um, the book is about, Meet Me at the Intersection, is a book about marginalised people. It's not a specifically Indigenous book. It has four Aboriginal contributors to the book, Ellen being one of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the book is about marginalised people told by people from marginalised groups. Um, And if you look at the cover of the book, which I know you can't actually see, but the cover has a beautiful circular uh, design and that it's designed by an Aboriginal artist called Amberlyn Quamalina. And it's says on the front cover that the circles are the voices of marginalised people in Australia, beginning in the centre with the voices of First Peoples or First Nations Australians and flowing out from there to other marginalised people Mm. in this land. So the book contains um, stories or poems, uh, stories both fiction and non-fiction, poems and short opinion pieces from people in Australia who are uh, queer, who are Aboriginal, who um, have a disability, uh, who may live in remote areas um, a long way from capital cities. Um, and it brings together a number of voices at a, at a meeting place. And the voices of some of these contributors are voices that may mm-hmm. feel marginalised at some or other times in Australian society 
Um, mm. And Alan has a particular story in that book. Mm. Yeah. Mm, beautiful. I think um, I'm coming to that event, so I'll see you there. Um, yeah, and yeah. we plan to talk in the event. We plan to use this book as a spring point and then talk about the many intersections in Aboriginal people's lives and mm. talk more broadly about Aboriginal stories Mm. Um, beyond this book and all the different um, Aboriginal experiences that you can engage with through literature. Mm, amazing. Can't wait for the event. Um, you've also recently contributed to another anthology called Women of a Certain Age. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Look, both these books, uh, Meet Me at the Intersection and Women of a Certain Age, both published by Fremantle Press, mm. as the name suggests. Um, a West Australian uh, press and it's been very innovative um, I'd like to say anyway congratulate Fremantle Press for its mm. innovation in terms of um, reaching out and collecting non-fiction stories because Women of a Certain Age is a collection of non-fiction stories and I have a story in here and so does Pat Munanjani Torres, so mm. there are two Aboriginal contributors in women of a certain age and it's a book about women who are over 40 and it also shares very diverse experiences. Um, it says 15 very different life stories by women from all work, walks of life mm. um, and it explores in particular women who feel invisible um, and women who embrace the unexpected freedoms of old age and women who look back and talk about identity, women who strive to belong mm -hmm. um, and women who really relish the state that they're in at the, at that particular moment. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what's special about both of these books is that they really, really... Um, they really represent the diversity that's out there among Aboriginal writers and mm. um, in our community, Aboriginal community of writers in particular. Um, we're a diverse community. Um, mm -hmm. We live all over Australia. We don't just live in, in countries or in remote areas as perhaps some people think because of the media depictions. Um, mm. And I, I think, you know, the strength of these, these books is that they, they do actually give a slice of that diversity and that demographic that's mm. in our writing community. Mm. And the term a certain age, could you maybe talk about what that means to you personally, especially in the context of being an Aboriginal woman? Yes, look. Um, it's very important and um, in our communities our elders are very revered um, and we're a matriarchal society mm -hmm. um, and me personally um, I grew up with three generations of women who were what I would call Aboriginal feminists um, I think we were not part of the official feminist movement mm -hmm. but as as a woman, the independence and the um, respect that the my artist and my grandmother taught me from a cultural perspective has been really seminal in my life. And um, the value of what um, 
older people have to say and the experience of age is particularly important mm-hmm. um, in our community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what that means to me personally is to be able to draw on a wealth of experience from the women before me and to to now be in a position to um, to share that mm-hmm. with women um, of a younger generation to me. And I'm a teacher um, of creative writing at the University of Melbourne. Mm-hmm. So being of a certain age comes with a tremendous amount of responsibility as well as wealth of knowledge too. Mm-hmm. It's all about passing on the knowledge to the next generation. It's all about um, passing on the knowledge it's all about preserving history because I think about mm. my life and the, the reason why I know about my Aboriginal history, um, the reason why I am so solid in my identity as an Aboriginal woman is because of the women before me, mm. my aunties and my grandmother. Mm. Um, and, and Aboriginal women from all walks of life as mm. well mm. Um, who have been examples to me yeah yeah and um yeah we're going to have to wrap up soon but i just have one one question one final question for you in your experience you um have obviously seen a lot of changes or or shifts in aboriginal writing and publishing and in the general literary scene what what do you think are the next steps or what needs changing when it comes to showcasing or celebrating more first nations people's voices in this area right Uh, i think the most important thing is more um, is more of our books, more of our books like Women of a Certain Age, like Meet Me at the Intersection. Mm. Um, the University of Queensland Press does a whole black writing series. Um, there are many publishers of poetry. There are many Aboriginal poets and things out there as well. <laughs> I think the most important thing is for people to read our books because that's the way you learn about us. You won't learn about Aboriginal people too much from the traditional history. Mm. And to appreciate the diversity in our community, like, um, mm. we're not just a young community. <laughs> I'm sorry. Mm. We're not just a young community. We're a very diverse community. We live in cities. Um, we do all sorts of professional jobs, and while we have a distinct cultural identity as individuals, um, we are very diverse. And I think in terms of engaging and celebrating and showcasing First Nations people and voices, it's about um, reaching out and looking for our stories in books and bringing them into schools and sharing them and appreciating mm, the breadth mm. and the knowledge and the depth of the community that is out there. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us today, Janine. That's beautiful. And I and I look forward to meeting you at the Meet Me at the Intersection event. Thank you, Anya. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank Bye. you. Bye. <laughs> The Australian Plants Expo is a huge native plant fair coming up on September 8th and 9th in Eltham. There'll be books, art, giftware and talks by Philip Johnson, A.B. Bishop and Loretta Childs. There'll also be demonstrations and workshops on botanical art, propagation and native bonsai, as well as activities for children, refreshments and door prizes. 
Saturday and Sunday, September 8th and 9th, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Contact at apsyarrayarra at gmail.com or call 0430-513-433 for more details. Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We just had a chat with Dr Janine Lane. Um, and if you want to go to that event that she was talking about, it's called Meet Me at the Intersection, and it features her and Ellen Van Neven in, a, in what um, looks like a very illuminating discussion. It's on the 8th of September, 2 to 3, at the North Fitzroy Library. And I think we now have a song for you. It's by Emma Donovan and the Putbacks, and it's called Black Woman. <laughs> running to receive nearly $100,000 to help us retrofit our station for greater accessibility. That means better handrails, doors, taps, ramps. And more to provide improved access for everyone. But we need your support. Do you live within 5 kilometres of the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy? If you do, you're eligible to vote for us. Our project is part of the Victorian State Government's Pick My Project Scheme. And you can jump online and vote for 3CR's Community Radio Accessibility Project by going to 3cr.org.au. It's only with your vote that we can receive this important funding to make our station more accessible. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We've got Con Caravius on the line, who is the Students Education Officer, uh, sorry, the Education Officer at the National Union of Students to talk about the Books Not Bombs campaign. Hi, Con. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks, Heath, for having me. <laughs> so, can you talk us through the Books Not Bombs campaign? Uh, Yeah, so the campaign is one that we set up through the National Union of Students earlier this year. Um, We've kind of got two key focuses at the moment for what's going on on our university campuses. One is generally to take on the issue of education funding. Um, So we saw at the very start of this year over $2.2 billion was cut from higher education um, when Malcolm Turnbull was still Prime Minister. Um, But we also saw very soon after that that the government created a $3.8 billion fund for private arms companies. So cutting billions from education while sinking billions more, not even just into the Defence Department, but just into private companies that produce weapons. So in that regard, very much campaigning for funding education, not war, books, not bonds. Um, But the other key aspect of the campaign really is to take on the increasingly strong and direct ties between 
the arms industry and our universities all across the country, especially the larger universities, the group of eight unis, they spend a huge amount of money investing in and doing joint research work with what are really some of the most heinous um, weapons producers on the planet. So we want our unis to break those ties. We want them to be independent of corporate influence um, and to use their funds to you know, make sure they're well-staffed, providing good arts degrees and all that sort of stuff. Mm, and surely this is, you know, a pretty significant ethical issue that our uh, educational institutions have ties to arms manufacturers. Well, absolutely. Um, there's been, you know, I study in Melbourne, where at Melbourne University, for instance, the main um, weapons producer they have ties with is Lockheed Martin, where basically they have enormous research facilities which are subcontracted out to Lockheed. Now, you might have seen in the last few weeks, there have been quite a number of exposés um, of what's going on in Yemen, where it's increasingly clear that um, the fighter jets, the bombs, a lot of the weaponry that the Saudi Arabian regime uses when it commits war crimes, when it bombs Red Cross hospitals, for instance, or Doctors Without Borders facilities, um, the use of bombs and fighter jets that are produced by Lockheed Martin. So our universities are literally subsidising... Um, the profits and the research of corporations that um, contribute to mm. producing atrocities around the world. Um, yeah. So we don't want any part in that. Yeah, it's it's really concerning. And so you held a protest last week, which was uh, in relation to a conference. And what was the conference and how did the demonstration go? Um, so the conference was called Syndicate 2018. Um, it was organised by the Defence Science and Technology Group, which is um, basically a group that specialises only in military hardware and is one of the largest funded research institutions in Australia. The conference's tagline was connecting defence um, with industry and academia. So it was basically providing a space for captains of industry um, amongst weapons producers to get together with the heads of universities. So we thought it was a really good target to protest. The rally itself went really well. It was it was not huge. It was only about 50 people or so, but we went out there. We kind of disrupted things, um, got a bit rowdy. The media luckily came out, which was really good. Um, but it was just about starting to send a bit of a message that there's students out there who are going to take a stand against what's going on and going to not be shy about doing so, but are going to be kind of rowdy and rebellious um, and get up in the faces of the people who are organising these things. Yes, yeah. I mean, I've been surprised, I guess, that there hasn't been as much of a, I guess, a large movement in terms of people participating. It seems like people, maybe they know about it, like students know about it, but they're not actively engaging as much as they could. Um, Well, it's a campaign that we're only just starting to organise, and I think the reception so far has been really good. We've had launches um, in the last month on campuses all around the country, and some of these have attracted north of 100 students, especially in places like South Australia, where the defence industry is just so prominent and so much a part of the universities now. I think one of the things that makes it hard is the universities are very secretive about what their ties are. So as part of our campaign, we've launched freedom of information requests um, into dozens of unis around the country but virtually none of them have been willing to comply with those. They don't want it on the public record or um, available to anyone mm. who's curious. 
exactly what their ties are. So, so a big this, part of what we're trying to do now is raise awareness. Yeah, and so is this in terms of getting knowledge about where they're getting funding from? Um, both where they're getting funding from, but we're also curious about questions of governance. So a number of the chancellors or people who sit on the university boards also sit on the boards of arms manufacturers, and often the the companies that the university is investing in or doing deals with are the companies run by those same people. So there's a an element right. of conflict of interest. There yeah, well. absolutely. And so why are our universities linked to weapons producers? Well, I think the weapons production is increasingly a part of kind of Australia. Turnbull, again, before he went off from being Prime Minister, said earlier this year that he wanted Australia to be one of the 10 biggest arms exporters in the world. And so that increasingly just encroaches on the campuses. I think also it's a reflection of just how corporatized the modern university is, um, partially because government funding has continually decreased, and there's plenty to indicate the Liberals will continue to try to do that. The universities increasingly look to partnerships with private companies in order to receive their funding. So we see that in the arms industry. We see that in things like the Ramsey Centre for Western Civilization in Sydney and Canberra, um, and a host of other quite problematic developments. But yeah, I think it's both the corporatisation and just the militarisation of Australian society makes yeah. it almost inevitable unless we stand against it. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't make it okay, you know, the fact that it, is un- it, you do, it doesn't make sense in terms of funding being cut, but then surely there's a line that you can cross in terms of where you actually get money from. Um, and historically, have there been controversies around companies that universities get funding from? Yeah, definitely. I think this has been an issue basically for as long as student protests have been an issue. Um, one of my favourite examples is in the late 60s, there were huge rallies at La Trobe University because their Chancellor, Sir Archibald Glenn, was also the, the chair of a company called ICI, which produced chemicals and munitions. Now, this was a company that was making um, armaments to be used in the bombing of Vietnam. It was also a company that had um, factories in apartheid South Africa, for instance. So there were huge student protests at La Trobe where he was Chancellor, and a 1,000 students in a huge meeting actually voted to to compel him to resign, which he eventually did. Um, wow. So there's a long, proud tradition of these yep. sorts of movements, um, yep. which we want to continue. And so, you know, that's a great example of where there, there was an outcome as a result of that push. Yeah, absolutely. And we really think the more we highlight these connections and make them clear, and the more we show their strong opposition to them, we think there's a lot of space to achieve similar outcomes today. Yeah, absolutely. And so how can students get involved, or people generally, if they want to get involved in this movement? Um, so we have campaign collectives set up on campuses around the country. Um, the branding for these is Disarm, so campaigns like Disarm Monash, Disarm Adelaide University and so forth. So students can get involved locally there, or they can get in touch through the Books Not Bombs Facebook page. Um, but yeah, we're also looking for, we've had a number of staff members involved, community groups, peace networks and all that sort of stuff. Um, so people more broadly interested of more than welcome to get in touch through Facebook or through the NUS website. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, I hope we get to see some more events being held in the coming weeks. And thank you so much for joining us, Con. This is a really, really important issue. I know it's an important one for me personally. So thank you for your time. No worries. Thanks for having me.
you got to remember, Nainok's a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy Nadoff! You're listening to Tuesday Brekkie on 3CR. So I'm going to play a new track that I discovered recently. It's uh, by a band called Demon Days who are from Perth. They're an up-and-coming funk neo-soul band, and this track is called Daria's Smile. Enjoy. You're listening to Tuesday Brekkie on 3CR. More great interviews coming up, so I hope you can stick around. That track we just heard was by a band called Demon Days, and it's called Daria's Smile. That was great, George. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Next up, we have Zachary Penrith-Pachalski. Zach is a queer Indigenous person from the Yota Yota and Jajawarong tribes, and he resides in the South who resides in the south suburbs of Melbourne. Zach is the grandson of Burnham Burnham, who famously planted the Aboriginal flag on the white cliffs of Dover in 1988. Zach recently appeared on ABC's You Can't Ask That, um, and has also recently contributed a piece called Abo Nose in the critically acclaimed anthology Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia. Zach has written about many has written many pieces in various publications about controversial topics, including suicide, drug use, and LGBTIQA issues. I'm super excited to talk to you, Zach. Hello. Good morning. Um, let's jump right in. Uh, let's start by talking about your story in the anthology. Without giving too much away, what is it about? Um, it's probably mostly about family and identity, mm-hmm. especially for me personally. Um, growing up Aboriginal um, in the south suburbs of Melbourne, um, in the Bayside area specifically, it's a very um, elite and white area, and we were the only, you know, black kids on my street and probably like in our suburb. <laughs> and mm. So a lot of it is about. My mom, especially, who um, my mum was, is black, mm-hmm. Aboriginal, and my dad, he's Polish. That's where the last name Pachelki comes from. Mm-hmm. And it's um, part of it's about how growing up, I was a bit embarrassed about her being so defiant and you know outspoken and all of these things when I was a kid. But as I grew up, these are the things that I'm proud of in myself and now like proud of in her Mm. because that wasn't something I had like I didn't have a strong voice or a big voice and and hopefully I get there any day now (laughs) (laughs) Mm. we grow up to become our mothers don't we oh 
I hope I do. <laughs> She's a pretty great lady. Yeah. Um, there is one part of your story which really um, stuck with me, where you say, all white people in my school would laugh at every Abo joke they ever heard while simultaneously being nice to me. And how, when you do get angry about racist jokes or comments about you or other First Nations people um, shared in your presence, you'd then be termed a drama queen, chastised for creating a scene, and ends with you apologizing for it. Um, and I just thought maybe we could talk about that a little bit. The whole idea of being nice to individual persons of a marginalized group while actively or passively contributing to the system of racist and oppressive institutions, but then also making it seem like it's the fault of the person experiencing such disadvantage. Does that, does that reflect, or like how often does that reflect in your activist work, and how can we go about changing it? Well, um, ever since I was a kid, it happened. Like, um, in high school, my sister especially, like, when we grew up, people would, like, comment on Abo nose or, oh, she has an Abo nose. And then they would turn around to, you know, see, obviously, me or my sister and our dark skin and our Abo noses. Mm. And then they'd be like, oh, but I didn't mean it like that. Mm. And then it's like, how did you mean it, though? Because it obviously wasn't a compliment. <laughs> mm. And and the way, it, like, it, as I grew up and my sister grew up, like, as we both grew up, it made us, less ashamed about, like, I love my nose and I'm sure my sister does and mm. and she just had my nephews, Caden and Chris, and I hope they grow up and they love every single part of themselves because, like, everything I talk about or I do, especially this story, mm. is so that other people coming up with me or that will grow up read, hopefully reading these stories will will feel some sense of pride, especially if they're Aboriginal. But I'm sure, like, non-Indigenous people will get something from the stories as well. Mm. Mm. So changing the world one story at a time. Yep, just one story at a time, (laughs) like one little sequin at a time. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. And you've written... Yeah, it it really sticks with me because, yeah, like, we grew up in, obviously, our neighbourhood and we were the only Indigenous people. And Mm -hmm. as we grew up, we realised there was more and we shouldn't have to put up with this or, like, these Avo jokes or these jokes about other races even. Like, Mm -hmm. if they're they're making, like, an Asian joke or an Indian joke, like, imagine what they're saying, my friends. Mm -hmm. Imagine what they're saying when I'm not around, Mm -hmm. you know? About me, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that's how it, like really stuck with me with the activism work. Yeah, yeah. And I I suppose it's something that still happens in the uh, the so-called progressive circles where um oh, yeah. yeah, they're nice to to their, you know, their black friend or their brown friend, but as a whole And then they do it like almost for like so they could get like a gold star or a medal for it. Mm, mm. Just being nice to me makes you seem cooler or more progressive. Yeah. Oh. Too soon. <laughs> um, you've also written uh, various other pieces prior to um, this growing up Aboriginal in Australia anthology. Can you tell us more about that? Um, I wrote about um, Invasion Day, and I will never call it Australia Day, even though everybody 
attacked me for calling it Invasion Day, mm. but it is always going to be Invasion Day to me, and I don't care what everybody says about it. Mm. And I wrote about it um, explaining how I don't really leave the house or do anything around the days leading up to that because I'm used to being, like, accosted for it. Like, if I go out and have a drink at a pub on a Friday night, you know, Mm. Like, some white guy will identify that I'm black or Aboriginal, and then they'll think that that's the great time to come up and be like, so why do you do you call it Invasion Day? And then they'll ask a whole bunch of questions, mm. but it always ends with them getting upset and start becoming quite aggressive if I don't fall in line for them. Mm. Mm. And so that that was the one I wrote earlier this year. I got a bunch of trolls. <laughs> attacking me for it and then I also wrote about my ice years mm-hmm. um, and I was on You Can't Ask That for That mm-hmm. on the ABC last year and that was something that I decided to write because I think that speaking your truth is the most powerful thing that you have mm-hmm. and I think even in the ugly parts or the beautiful parts or the like the rage and the sorrow I think that all of those are parts of who you are. Mm. And I think that I don't think just my story is worth hearing, Mm. even though it is. But I think that everybody has those different parts of them and shame is included in that, like the whole who you are. Mm. And I think that's worth writing about or talking about at least. And these are um, very personal stories that you put out into the world, you know, your journey with ice addiction, your exploration of your queer identity as an Aboriginal person. Incredibly, incredibly personal. What made you want to share them so openly? So um, a couple of years ago, um, my father, um, he suicided, Mm. and I found him. Um, It was September the 29th in 2014 and I found him and I remember watching people like my mother and my sister fall apart like completely come undone and I remember how shocking it was to like not only have my dad die but Mm. just how my mum and my sister and the people that I love the most on the planet you know go through like the darkest of dark and that probably caused me the most shock from it all mm-hmm. and because of that I decided never to like conceal or hide anything anymore ever again mm-hmm. and I'm going to you know shout out and say everything I can while I can mm-hmm. because it's because I I just think that I couldn't I couldn't understand because he never spoke to us Mm. about it was a complete surprise when he suicided. Mm. So it was in that moment I was like, I I need to start talking more and doing more and, like, becoming bigger and shouting out. And even if it's, like, the ugly truth or the nice truth, just Mm. say something that means something, you know? Mm. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. Um, And I just have one one final question related to that. 
Yeah, talking about these issues and writing about it, I expect that it requires a lot of emotional energy and, yeah, the the constant battling of of hideous trolls. Um, do you have any self care tips for other writers who are doing the same or who want to do the same? I think I yeah, I think I would be really cautious of what you're going to say because you're going to have to answer questions about it obviously mm-hmm. and you're going to have to like back yourself up with what you're saying so be very careful about what you're saying but also you're I think the idea of self-care about talking about your identity or who you are mm-hmm. is kind of a mute point because you should be allowed to speak your truth mm-hmm. like I I'm allowed to and and you're allowed to, Anya, and mm. everybody should be allowed to do that without being attacked. But for the time being, mm. that's not the case. So I think it would be to expect disagreements and people trying to, you know, take you down mm. because of something you've said. And, and that's on them more mm. than it is on you. And don't take it so hard or personally mm. because you, you told your story. And your story can never be wrong. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, and I guess, yeah, uh, telling your story is self-care for some people. So, yeah. That's... Yeah, exactly. Mm. I think, yeah, I think the ultimate thing that we can do for everybody around us, especially as people of colour, mm. is just talk and tell your story. Because somebody along the way, whether they're the same race as you or like the same class system or they're LGBTQIA or, or they're male or they're female or they're trans, mm-hmm. somebody will find something in your story along the way that they identify with. And I think I I read this thing that said that the risk to remain tightly closed doesn't outweigh mm. the risk of blooming. Mm. Oh, that's so say everything you need to say. Yeah. Because you only get one life, you know? And yeah. my my nan used to say, like, when you're dying or when you're at the end of it, you're mm. the one that has to watch your life flash before your eyes. Mm. So make it the most beautiful and truthful and colourful life you could ever do. Mm, that's beautiful. You've really inspired me to pick up the pen and, and write something. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> thank you. Well, that's um, unfortunately all the time we have um, for today. But thank you so much for joining us. Um, and I'll see you at the event. Pardon? I'll see you at the event on the 12th of September. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Anya. <laughs> no worries. Thank you. I might play a track now, mm, that's cool, yeah. um, by Indigenous artist The Marindas. It's called We Sing Until Sunrise. That was the Marindas, a little bit of that track called um, We, uh, what was it? We Sing Until Sunrise, I think. Uh, we're going to hear a song by Dreaming Now called Australia Does Not Exist. But before we do that... Um, so before that song played, we were just talking to Zachary Penrith Pachalski. You can catch him at the author talk Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia on the 12th of September, 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. at the Carlton Library.
Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast. You're um, listening to Ayan, and earlier we heard from Anya, and we have George. Lauren, unfortunately, is not with us. She will be back soon. But in the house, in the studio, we have the enigmatic, soulful, <laughs> multi-talented, Yota Yota, independence artist, Neil Morris. Thank you, thank you, thank you, sister. Uh, I was hoping for like some sort of, you know, the sound effects, <laughs> sort of like uh, sound effects were there. Bird calls, something. <laughs> um, so we just heard um, one of your chart-topping songs, Australia Doesn't Exist, featuring mm-hmm. Philly, Adrian Eagle, and Culture Evolves. Mm-hmm. Um, what made you want to write such a politically charged song? I guess. For many years, I feel that maybe it was already written deep somewhere uh, within me. I first kind of, you know, I grew up um, maybe not really thinking about a lot of that, you know, kind of thing in relation to like what, why have we gotten to where we've gotten as what is now called a nation by broader society. And when I turned about, I think it's probably about 17 or 18, I started to do a lot of, I guess, a lot of research. Um, I got a lot into philosophy and writing poetry and, um, you know, went through a lot of things at that point in time and just trying to figure out, like, hey, like, everything that they've set up in this society isn't probably how it should be. Mm. And, um, yeah, just began to, you know, link up with a, other, lot of, a lot of other mob who had really strong ideas about, you know, what is a path we can go down to get away from whatever this, you know, disastrous set of circumstances was that had got us to now and, and how that was still so prevalent. And I started to come across these talks and concepts around, you know, our sovereignty mm. and what that actually means, what it could look like. And so for me, I guess like ever since then, I've really held pretty firm beliefs about the illusory nature of this concept of Australia and mm. how if, if anybody really scrutinises that idea and looks at it closely, you will find every single time how the circumstances that Australia came to be, there's not actually one point in time where you can look at it and say that, like, that was a cool thing to be doing mm. um, anywhere in human existence. So for me, then how was there ever a, a set point in time where you could say, hey, that was a fair thing to do and that was a structure that mm-hmm. uh that anyone will be cool with if if they were the the primary group who had this idea inflicted upon them and, and led to the genocide of their people. So mm. I've had that idea sitting with me for a very long time and I guess you know, my art for the past few years hasn't necessarily been a type where I've been very clear about what I've wanted to express, although it's always been there in the work. I guess, you know, enough was enough Mm. and I was like, okay, I'm actually just going to spell these ideas out very clearly and this is the right time to do it. Mm. And because it's been such a huge success, I'm guessing people now might be ready to have this conversation? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I still feel like the track went over a lot of people's heads, Mm. which 
was it was always going to be interesting how much it went over a lot of people's heads versus how many people got it. I think it's been amazing and beautiful. The people that have understood what the track was about and why it was why it was made has been like super special. Mm. And I see the impact that it's had on a lot of people. It's just like amazing. It's more than what I could have anticipated. But on the other hand, what I've seen is there's still quite a way to go for large swathes of people to fully get these ideas and know how to implement these ideas around this. I feel like there's a big awakening happening at the moment, even within our own people, to fully like grasp the empowerment of an idea like this, to really take hold of that power and be like, hey, what does our sovereignty actually mean as a people? And then how do we enact that? I think... Like a lot of this language because of the disempowerment of our people for so long, mm. that language has just gone out of our um, vocabulary entirely, gone out of our beings. So we're now bringing in, you know, adjusting to even just having them words come out, come out of our mouths. How does that make us feel as a people? So it's interesting, like, what can that impact be for broader society beyond Indigenous people? And, you know, how long might it be before, like, people can hear a track like that like on mainstream radio and be like, of course it means this and of course it makes sense. I feel like, you know, the track, maybe it, you know, it's still a few, few years away for right. people to fully, um, you know, generally and broadly grasp it. Mm. But the people that have really got it, that's beautiful. And like the track's there forevermore now. And it's just cool because I feel like even when I don't listen to it myself for a while and then I listen to it, I'm like, yes, this is <laughs> like, we did a really good thing right. here. We did something that, you know, can change people's lives forevermore. Yeah. And that's really the greatest hope is that, that it can transform my people's lives first and foremost and to feel strong about being on this land, but also other people who identify with this idea mm. that they can feel strong, they can walk, um, more sure about their place on this land because they understand the true horrificness of how things are set up in this country and are looking to do something about mm. uh, making changes to that. Mm. And a platform that you're using, I guess, to add to this conversation is your art, right? So you have um, a Melbourne Fringe show coming up and it's called Muniak Mulana. Mm. Okay, mm-hmm. so I struggled with that. You but got the, thank you accurately. so much. <laughs> it means a lot too, actually. Okay, so, and you co created that show with. Um, Brent Watkins, and it's also produced by Leila Tucker. Can you tell us a bit about that show? Yeah, sure. So the show is called Muniak Mulana. Uh, Muniak means tomorrow or future, and Mulana means spirit. Uh, so those are words from Yoda Yoda language, which is uh, one of the bloodlines of myself. Um, I also grew up on Yorta Yorta country in a small town by the name of Marupana, near a larger mm-hmm. town by the name of Shepparton. And, um, Muniak Mulana, um, wow, it's a really big piece of work, I guess. It is my first foray into the world of, I guess, doing a full length theatre type piece, but that opens up another discussion again in terms of mm. when is art theatre and when is, when is art even art? Uh, <laughs> but, um, the show itself, like the reason for me wanting to do a show like this is largely about, you know, breaking out of the boxes of what people want and how they want art to be presented to them in this modern time. 
I have done a lot of spoken word, I've done a lot of music, I've done a lot of fusing them together and every single time I do either one of those, I do want to fuse them together and ideally I'd love to have a big fire right in front of me as I'm performing, you know, because for me, um, my art is not really art, it is about a spiritual, cultural calling and responsibility uh, for my people to continue to uh, practice, you know, my acknowledgement to my gift of life as an Indigenous brother mm-hmm. on this land and to to give healing, you know, first and foremost to myself by honouring my people, by honouring my ancestors, but then providing a platform for that to continue into the now. For me, I feel like it's absolutely crucial to do that. Um, it's not even something that I really feel like I have a decision in doing or not. Our people have been so colonised in this country that, you know, the ways for us to even get our culture back out there is so um, structured and modified in ways that it's like, you know, this modern society actually doesn't enable it. Like we're living in a city right now, Nam, of over 4 million people. Most of your cultural sites are gone from within this city. So you look around, you're like, wow, like, actually... Where are Indigenous people able to practice their culture? Mm. So I guess the realm of the arts world has enabled us to do that in some type of way um, of sorts. And I think for me, like the way my art can bounce through different disciplines, it's largely, it is about like re-trying to find like those places to do that in the now. And, you know, none of those ways are the perfect way. You know, none of those ways are the perfect avenue and because the decolonial processes that our people need to go through, certainly myself that I feel I need to go through, uh, you know, those processes, they, they, they're not necessarily going to look like one form. Because mm. if the people are going through a decolonial process, you know, they might not want to stick, stick to one form and that might not help them get the healing journey that they need. Mm. So for me, there's, there's a real beauty, particularly in bringing something into a theatre space where you can move through you know, what is considered as acting or theatre, you can move through music, you can do spoken word, dance, combine all of them elements in a way that other artistic platforms don't enable you to do mm. in the now, like just going to perform spoken word or being put on a stage and expected to just play music for 45 minutes. Um, for me, they're very modern Western constructs that lack the holistic nature of uh, our cultural performance um, and to you know, mention Brent as well, who's a dancer, um, who I'm doing the show with, a lot of his work will be very expressive as well. And that's something I've always loved about working with Brent. Like even if I'm doing a music set, having him a part of it, um, doing some dance or, you know, playing Yiraki, still bringing into it, like even in a music performance space, as much of a holistic type of presentation to people as possible. So... Uh, hopefully people will get a real beautiful experience of that with Muniak Molina and experience, you know, what that theme is about. Um, like it does mean tomorrow, it does mean future, but the show kind of explores how, you know, these concepts of spirituality for our people, it's not something that is of the past and it's not necessarily something of the now and it's something that is definitely in the future and is always going to be into the future. So the show really represents how, uh, our spirituality will always be here and is always going to help us survive and mm. stay beautiful, stay strong and keep 
trying to strive for what's important for this land and our people we we just have no choice there's always that calling there and Muniak Mulan is a representation of that mm. and finally I feel like we can talk to you forever but we're short on time um, one final thing because Muniak Mulana, um you even though you do talk about things like intergenerational trauma and so on there's a lot of resilience as well mm. um from what you're telling me and from what I've read, why do you think it's important to highlight that resilience? I think it's incredibly important because the resilience has has always been there. And as I said, with Muniak Mulana, for me, like the resilience, it will always be there in some shape or form. There will always be that fire of our people, even if at times it seems really dim and it's like you've gotten right down to coals and there's really not much else there. And I do feel like, you know, for me, that is the fact that our ancestors are in this land. That is the fact that they will always be in this land. And as a people, it's so intrinsic to who we are. We can't just, like, you know, cut off that part of ourselves which holds the ancestors in it. Um, as long as we live and breathe, there's going to be that connection to them that's going to call and awaken and have our people be like at various points in times. There's a course of action you should or could take at this point in time now it's on you to take that on or to not take that on mm. um, you can turn a blind eye and maybe not be so aware of that but if you really want to feel that and see that as an indigenous person it's there for you for the taking to embrace you know what that is to mean to be connected to a land for 60 to 80,000 plus years uh, that is stored in our DNA that is stored in every single part of our existence and so for me it's like it's just such a gift it's such a special gift this resilience so on the one hand it's there's trauma there's pain but on the other hand there is a great joy maybe people don't get to see that as much but there is a joy that is there in amidst all of the mayhem Mm -hmm. and the wreckage as well and that resilience you know brings together all of those factors and um that's why for me like it's so important to represent as much of that in my art as possible and certainly um you know not be boxed into one type of theme um we are as i mentioned earlier we're going through decolonial times for a lot of people and i feel like it's most important for people to get the most broader picture of that as possible and resilience is you know right at the core of that and will always be and that's a beautiful message to end on thank you so much neil morris Muniak Mulana launches on 11th of September and wraps up on the 16th. Tickets can be purchased on the La Mama website at www.lamama.com.au. There is a concession option. La Mama is also wheelchair and bathroom accessible. And so that's all we've got time for today. Hey. Yeah. Such an amazing show. Thank you to all our incredible guests. Beautiful guests today. Yeah. We'll see you next week. Bye.